This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at reactroundup.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another React Roundup. This week on our panel, we have Lukas Heisch. Hello, everybody. Justin Bennett. Hey, folks. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I just want to quickly announce, I know that we're like five weeks ahead, so it'll probably be well on its way by the time you get this, but I'm starting a new show. It's just going to be me with the occasional guest. I'm going to try and post every day, and I'm basically going to be talking about developer freedom, so freedom in your career, freedom in your job, how to create more of that where you work, or find a job that actually will provide you whatever freedom you want, and talk about the different kinds of freedom. So freedom, if it means to you basically that I go home at five o'clock and hang out with my family, or freedom where it's I wish I had more time to work on open source, or learn new things, or whatever that is for you. So we're going to talk about all of that stuff, and I'm really excited to get it going. We're recording this at the beginning of November, and I'm hoping to get it launched here within the next week or so. So anyway... Yeah. Jack, what if I want all of those freedoms you said? <laughs> we'll talk about all of it. Uh, we're here to talk to uh, Kent about testing today. We're not here to talk to Chuck about freedom. So, Okay. <laughs> uh, we have a special guest this week, and that's Kent C. Dodds. Hey there. Now, you were on the show for a while when we started it, and then, you know, got busy. People, people get busy. Yeah, uh, that happens. Just, yeah, you want to fill us in on what you've been doing since... Yeah, yeah. So I guess it's been a couple months. So yeah, my name is Ken C. Dodds. I'm a software engineer for PayPal. I do JavaScript full stack, mostly focused on front end and tools. I do spend a little bit of time on the server, but servers never were really super interesting to me. And so I, I spend most of my time in React and tooling related node stuff. So yeah, that's what I'm all about. I, I'm, yeah, for those who, who don't know me, I and the uh, pretty prolific in open source. I do uh, have created several open source projects that you have uh, probably heard of if you if not used. Uh, probably the biggest one is Cross ENV. That's one that people are constantly surprised that I'm I'm the author of that one, but lots of people use that. And yeah, I'm an instructor. I just released a huge course about testing, uh, testingjavascript.com. You can check that out. People seem to be pretty happy with that. And yeah, I'm on Egghead.io, Frontend Masters, and through Frontend Masters, I'm on Pluralsight. So I do a lot of teaching. Um, and a lot of open source. And then I've got a family. I'm married and four kids and a dog. And so pretty, pretty busy uh, stuff going on in my life. <laughs> nice. The four kids part is impressive. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's mostly impressive. That, that's mostly thanks to my wife. I, I don't do a whole lot to, <laughs> to make that happen. But, but yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty awesome. I'm trying to convince my wife to get the dog. Then we'll have you beat because we have five kids. Ooh, yeah. No, you you still have me beat. Dogs are are, are a bit of work, but not as much as a kid. <laughs> so our oldest is six, and we decided to get a dog anyway. I don't even know what we were thinking. You have but, four uh, kids, six and under. You you've got it rougher than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we we just got back from a family vacation. It was a cruise, and those are supposed to be really relaxing and stuff. And <laughs> nope. <laughs> Not with four kids, six and under. Nope. Yeah. Awesome. 
Well, let's talk about testing. I think uh, Lucas had uh, some ideas as far as where he wanted to start. So let's just jump in and start talking about testing React. Yeah, so Kent, first thing, first seven years ago, we were all talking about like, oh, we need tests. We were like 10 years ago having these projects that had no tests at all in the UI. We, the UI was getting more complicated. And, and today we are thinking about how to write better tests, right? It's like the next step on that subject. So you've been talking about ideas of maybe we have like two types of tests, tests that are telling tests that are test implementation details, tests that are not, one is good, one is bad. So what's your story with tests? Like what sparked these ideas? Yeah, that's, that's a good insight. You know, I, I actually wasn't around the software world seven years ago, but, um, but it does, does make sense that uh, we, as a software industry, we kind of like we're building solutions and then we find out that, hey, it's really annoying to, um, to ship a change and things break. And so let's go ahead and we'll We'll verify things before we ship stuff. And then we realize, oh, like this is pretty arduous. Let's automate some of this. And, and so now we're testing and, oh, some of these tests are better than others. And so now we're trying to, to improve our, our testing. Uh, so I think, I guess I came around about the time that, uh, at least in the front end world, uh, most people were starting to realize that testing was a good idea. I, I think it's been pretty recent that like lots of people were like, yeah, why would you test your JavaScript? It's like uh, 200 lines of code. Like that's, you know, a waste of time. But now it's, you know, 200,000 lines of code, 2 million lines of code. Like we, we've got pretty um, intense business logic going on in our front ends and breaking things in the front end um, can break entire experiences and, and ruin, um, you know, people's experience using your application. So yes, I, I got in when people were just starting to think, hey, it's probably a good idea that we test this JavaScript stuff. And one, uh, one person that really, like was the, my first introduction into testing JavaScript is Joe Eames, who people are, should probably be familiar with. He was actually one of the organizers of ReactConf and he's very involved in, in the uh, dev community and he's really heavily into testing. He was finding a, a losing battle at the company we were at. Nobody was really interested in testing, but I was, you know, brand new developer at the time. This was four years ago. And he just took me under his wing and taught me testing. And, and I thought it was cool, but it, like it never really worked into my, got into my workflow until I started doing a lot of open source and realizing that it was annoying to have to go through and, and manually check things before I release or, or deal with broken things when I released. And so I started testing and, and that was really where it came um, from for me was I said, you know what, I, I really don't like having to manually check things before I release. And so I'll automate some of that process. And then once I kind of tasted the fruit of those labors, it just became a totally natural thing for me. All of my open source projects are 100% covered with tests, and I often don't need to do any more than run the test uh, before I make a release. And that, that's pretty, that feels pretty safe for me. It helps me sleep at night. So that's, that's how I got into testing. Okay, so here at my work, one thing that, that happened is like, well, we have a bunch of tests. We're super well tested. The, 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 the sentence, uh, the quote, uh, there's no such thing as too many tests were being said a lot. <laughs> I love and, that. <laughs> Test on then, all. Yes. And then uh, we were realizing that like every change we made, we were breaking seven, eight, nine tests. And then people were like start to talk about unit tests as like this cumbersome thing that is always making me mad. 
And, and I started noticing that this was probably like a bad cultural shift of like tests are this helpful thing to test is like something cumbersome. And I also felt that it was not providing the feedback that we needed. Like we need to refactor something and, and it's like, it's not, it's everything we change breaks stuff. So how do I know this suite of tests is actually helping me? So how, how did it work? Uh, how, how did it happen at PayPal? How, how was the process there? And how did you start thinking about those things? Lucas, that resonates so perfectly. That, uh, I, I think that's a really valuable insight. I remember writing tests early on and, and thinking, I feel like I'm just rewriting my code in my test. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm copy pasting some logic and stuff into my test. Like this is, what is this even doing? And, and every single time you touch the, the source code, the tests are breaking. And so you're thinking, okay, so what am I verifying? That all that my tests are verifying is that I haven't touched the source code. <laughs> and so that's, that's not helping me at all. Um, so yeah, the, the reason this happens, and you're right, Lucas, it's a really dangerous shift. We spend all of this effort and time thinking, like trying to convince people, hey, we need to test, like this is really important. And then they do it, they're like, yeah, okay, this feels good, you know, it's, it's a nice workflow, whatever. And then all this happens and they're like, no, testing is worthless. And, and they, they go back even, even more sure that their testing, testing is, is not worth the effort. So the reason this is happening is because in testing, you can have, you wind up with two scenarios if you do it incorrectly. Uh, and it's really easy to do incorrectly. So one scenario is you have a false negative where a test is failing, but the, the application is working. And that leads to the really frustrating experience that we're talking about here, where it's like, yeah, my test isn't doing any good for me. It's just slowing me down. So that's the false negative case. And then you have the false positive where the test is passing, but you actually broke, broke the app. So you're not testing, you're not ensuring that the user, uh, user's experience using your app is going to work. Uh, you're just testing that your test is working. So it's, it doesn't provide you any level of confidence. In fact, I would suggest that those tests are, uh, those kinds of tests that lead to false negatives and false positives are actually worse than having no tests at all because it, it, it slows you down and it makes you feel like you're confident when you actually aren't. So you'll go ahead and release stuff because the tests are passing, uh, but the application's actually broken. And I think that the big secret to being a happy and successful tester is being able to look at your test suite or to avoid those false negatives and false positives in your test suite. And that's, that's kind of the secret that I, I teach about in my blog posts and in my open source libraries in testingjavascript.com. That's the key nugget that I think a lot of people are missing. And uh, I'm trying to fill that, that hole in all of the stuff that I do. So what is the makeup of a good test? What should you be testing and what should everything. you avoid testing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. test everything, all the things, every line. No. Uh, well, so I started programming, I got indoctrinated that way, right? 100% test coverage, cover everything, look at everything. You need to test on everything. And some of that stuff, it was like, I don't even know where to start, man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we can talk about 100% code coverage uh, later because I've got some thoughts about that. But yeah, so how do, you, how do you avoid those false negatives and false positives? So if you take a step back and let's, let's think about this uh, from the perspective of like from the very beginning, we don't have any tests at all. We've never automated any testing. The, the idea of automation is not even like hasn't been invented yet. So what are we going to do? Well, before like we've, we've made a change, 
we're going to ship it to production. But before we do that, we're going to manually walk through a series of steps to make sure that things are working. So we'll, yeah, we'll click on the uh, label or the, sorry, the input that's labeled username. We'll type in a fake username that we have in the database or whatever. Then we'll find the password field. We'll type in the password and then we'll find the submit button. We'll hit submit. And then we'll verify that we have been successfully logged in, our usernames displayed somewhere, whatever. And so this is the experience that the user is looking for. Uh, this is how we know that our software is working. And if your test is doing anything other than that, then you're not getting the confidence that that is going to work. You're just getting the confidence that what your test is doing is going to work, which is fine. Maybe like there's, there's some sort of correlation there. But if you can get your test to be, your automated test to be as close to, as possible to that experience that you're trying to verify, then you can get a lot more confidence that it's going to work. And when you break something, your test should break as well. Um, and so the quote that I, I say regularly, it's one that I made up myself, so I'm quoting myself, <laughs> but it is that the more your tests resemble the way that your software is used, the more confidence they can give you. Uh, and that's my guiding principle for how I write tests. That's the guiding principle for my, my libraries is my libraries should give you utilities to make your tests resemble the way that your software is being used. So one thing that I see a lot, like if we're going to talk specific examples, one thing that I see a lot is people who are using a tool like Enzyme, they'll render a component and then, uh, or they'll mount it or whatever, and then they'll get the instance of that class that they've mounted, the class of that component, and they'll call methods on it. They'll verify that its state is being updated correctly. They'll interact with it in a way that's totally different from the way that regular users will use that component. So uh, if we think about automated testing of our React components, we should consider who are the users of this component. There's the end users who are gonna be looking for username and type that in, password type that in, and then submit button. And then there's the um, developer user who's going to render that login form. And so they're gonna be passing an on login submit or whatever uh, click handler so our test should be using that component in the same way and not do anything that our, um, our two users w uh, could or would generally do. So our developer user isn't going to get the instance and call methods on it. They're going to render it with this callback. And then our end user is going to be clicking around and filling things in and then clicking the submit button. Uh, and then the, the developer user is going to do something with that click handler, right? So... Uh, the mistake I see a lot, people rendering something that, and then mucking around with the instance, um, that basically is saying now my source code has three users. It has the end user, the developer user, and the test user. Uh, and so now, uh, like before, I, when I it was in my application code, I was just concerned about the developer user and the end user. And if my test starts using it in a different way, now I have to also be concerned about the test user. And I, I don't really, like, the end user doesn't care about the test user. The developer who's using the component doesn't care about the test user. Uh, it, so your, um, your test exists for itself in that scenario. Uh, and so we, we avoid this by uh, using tools that allow us, or using tools in a way that resemble the way our software is used. So we get rid of that test user that nobody cares about and focus only on the developer user and the end user. Does that make sense? For sure, for sure. So in both of these cases, the the end user is going to be like more of an integration test. It's going to be like walking through user flow and like driving that. And the developer user, is that going to map up more to like what a unit test would be, making sure that it like 
takes the right things and reacts in expected ways in the isolated context that a developer would use it? Is that kind of how you look at it? Yeah, that's a good question, Justin. So I'm, I generally, I, I actually don't care too much for the distinctions between integration and, and unit tests. If I really look at, at the test that I've written and think hard about what, you know, what qualifies for each, each type, then I definitely spend a lot more time in the integration test scenario. Most of my like purely unit test uh, tests are of regular functions that are pure functions, they return values. You know, I give them values, they return values the same every time. Uh, those are really easy to write. I love writing those. Uh, I have complex logic. I'm going to stick it in a module like that and I'll test it that way. But for my React components, most of the time, those are going to be integration tests. And I'm going to be doing that in, in a way that uh, resembles the way that the software is being used. So I'll render the component to the DOM and I will like, I'll find the um, username input by uh, its label because that's how the user's going to find it. I'll find the password input by its label. Often I'll see people say, okay, I find all the inputs. The first input um, we'll, we'll put in the username. The second input we'll put in the password. And then that breaks because we change the order or because we add a checkbox at the beginning or for whatever reason. But that wouldn't break the user. If we were manually testing this, that wouldn't break the user's experience. And so it shouldn't break your test either. So React Testing Library has, has these queries that allow you to get a labeled input in the way that a user would. They just look for the label text. And so anyway, I, I think I'm kind of drifted away from what you're asking about. But the general idea is I care less about um, the type of test I'm writing and more about the type of confidence that I'm getting out of my test uh, and more about use cases. I think one mistake that we get a lot of times is, is we look at a React component and we see the component did update lifecycle method and we think, I need to test this component did update lifecycle method. And what we should be asking ourselves is, what are the use cases this thing supports? If I re-render it with a new URL, then it should like go refetch you know, this, uh, that URL or whatever the case may be. And so we should be testing use cases and not code. And code coverage is a metric to, to show us, uh, to help us find the use cases that we're missing or find code that actually shouldn't be there at all because we don't have that use case anymore. We never needed, uh, needed that code in the first place. But yeah, focusing our, on use cases, not code, and fo uh, not worrying so much about whether or not your test is integration or unit, um, that's worked out really well for me and the teams that I've worked on. And so hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, for sure. So I have worked a lot in testing in the past. I actually helped maintain a, a Selenium binding for robot framework back in the day, which is a, a integration testing tool. And one of the big things that, you know, following a user's flow with testing is it can also, it can often be difficult for a variety of reasons. One is like, well, if you're using a tool like Selenium, you don't have as much like application level knowledge and you have, there's a lot of like timing things. When are things gonna render? When are things gonna be available? So I guess React Testing Library is going to alleviate a lot of those problems. Um, but are you, still, are you still testing things a little bit in, an, in isolation? Uh, so you're only testing like this like top level component that contains this flow or are you trying to kind of mount this whole like app and test like a flow in the app? That's a really great question. So generally, like, it, it kind of depends. I, I have a kind of a combination of both of these things. Um, but when I'm talking about uh, UI integration testing, um, I am still mocking the back end. And so whether or not I'm 
I'm rendering a, a higher level component that renders a bunch of components, like so an entire page or something, or, or a one specific component, um, I, I'm not going to be making HTTP calls. I'll also generally mock um, animation libraries so that I don't have to wait for a full second before the DOM node is actually removed or, you know, whatever. But those are pretty much the only things that I, I generally will mock is, is things that make HTTP calls. And um, uh, also there, there are things like browser APIs that aren't implemented in JS DOM or are really hard to, to kind of simulate the position of this element or whatever. Generally, I'll, I'll make a module that interacts with those browser APIs and mock that module, or I'll create my own mock uh, globally or something. Uh, those are kind of hard to test in, in JS DOM. And, and uh, if I really need that confidence, I'll probably move that to a, a test in Cypress or something. But for the most part, I, I can do things in JS DOM. But yeah, aside from those things, I'm, I'm going to be rendering the, the whole component. And it kind of depends on what I'm trying, uh, the use case that I'm trying to get out of my test. I, I definitely have some tests that will take, okay, let's take this page, we'll render the whole page, uh, and, and then click around and interact with it the way that the user would. Um, I have other tests where I'll, I'll, I'll start at the app component, I'll render the whole app, and then I'll click around and, and things. Uh, those are starting to get into the realm of, of um, the end-to-end -end testing that I do. Um, but end-to-end -end testing for me is more kind of exploratory, like let's pretend we really are a user and we're going to do many things. Um, so end-to-end -end tests gen for me generally tend to be quite long and it's just a series of, like this flow that a typical user would, would do. They'll log in, they'll, um, they'll click on this, they'll add this to the cart, they'll remove this from the cart, lots and lots of different actions. Integration test is a little less of that, but it still does have multiple um, pieces to it. And then the, the unit test will be, hey, there's this weird edge case or there's this really complicated function. Um, I wanna make sure that I'm, I'm covering all of those things. Um, integration tests will also get into edge cases of my components and things like given that I, I can get into this state, I'm not going to allow the user to do this thing or whatever. Uh, so it, it kind of ebbs and flows. It, it depends on really what I'm looking to get out of my tests. Um, generally, it, it, if I were to like take a inventory of the tests in my applications, I have a handful of end-to-end -end tests that are going to be um, behaving the way that a typical user would like in reality in my application. Uh, and then I'll have a, a whole bunch of integration tests, but just a few of those will, will render a really big component that renders many other components. Most of those are going to be, um, you know, my card component or, or um, maybe a form, um, but they're, they're going to render the full tree below them. Uh, and then I'll have uh, a handful of unit tests for all of my uh, more complicated logic. I hope that kind of answers uh, your question there. Yeah, for sure. One thing I'm curious about, you know, you're talking about all these different sort of levels, and I have a few of these, and I have a few more of these, and a lot of these, especially on like end-to-end -end tests, I find that those are rather expensive to write and run. You know, some of the integration ones will be as well, um, as well as if you're rendering, like you said, massive, components that render a bunch of other components. You know, a lot of that can get expensive as far as the time it takes to run the tests. One thing that I'm curious about is wh where do you decide, okay, these are expensive, so I don't want to do too many of them, but at what point is it worth it to do one of those, like an end-to-end -end test or an integration test at some level? Yeah, that's a great question, Chuck. So lots of people are familiar with the testing pyramid, um, where you, at the base of the pyramid you have unit, then in the middle you have integration, and at the top you have end-to-end. -end. And so um, the, the idea is that you have more unit, then a little like fewer integration, and then even fewer end-to-end. -end. 
And there are two arguments for why your test should be kind of shaped that way or your focus should be shaped that way. The one argument is the higher up the pyramid you go, the more expensive it is to write, run, and, uh, and wait for those, those tests to actually work. Uh, they're also more finicky the higher up the pyramid you go. And so they're, they're just kind of frustrating. That's pretty much it. It's like they, they cost more and they take longer. But the one thing that, the, that always rubbed me wrong about the testing pyramid is that it ignores uh, this thing that I call the testing uh, confidence coefficient. So the higher up the pyramid you go, the more confidence those tests are going to give you. And the reason for that is pretty simple. It's just that the higher up the pyramid you go, the more real world um, experience you're testing. Um, so you're getting closer and closer to your test resembling the way that the software is used, right? So end-to-end -end test level, that's like right down to um, not like the entire application is an implementation detail and we're just using this exactly like a user would, which is, is a great thing. And so, yeah, I, I saw the testing pyramid and I said, yeah, that, that's interesting, but what about the, the confidence coefficient? Like, you know, if, if it gets more expensive and takes longer to run, the higher up the pyramid I go, then why don't I just spend 100% of my time in unit tests at the bottom? Like they're faster and they don't take as long and they don't cost as much. Like I, I should spend all of my time writing those tests. But that's the reason for spending more time uh, higher up the pyramid is because there's the confidence coefficient. Maybe like 10 years ago, um, this was true and the pyramid worked really well. But our tools today are much better. And so um, we can afford to spend more time uh, with tests that are uh, giving us more confidence. For example, um, one, one thing that people often complain about with integration and end-to-end -end tests is that um, because your uh, tests include the concerns of a lot of different components of your application, there are more points of failure. And so when something does fail, uh, like there's a bug in one little component that's being used in like 30 tests, you're going to have all 30 of your tests fail. And you're like, okay, so what on earth is broken here? And uh, back in the day when our tools weren't all that great, um, that I can see how that could be very frustrating, like spending hours trying to figure out, okay, looking at all the tests error output and thinking what on earth, there's something in here that's busted and I don't know what it is. Uh, so I can see how that could be really frustrating. But now our tools, they'll show us like the line that threw the error. They'll show us like the, the code that, um, um, that is causing the problem. In Cypress, it'll like you can literally look at the browser and step through and see DOM snapshots, interact with the, mm -hmm. the DOM at any point, any assertion in, in um, that tool. So it's, it's actually remarkably easy to find out um, which one of these things broke. Now, it is still kind of... Um, um, surprising and abrupt to see like 30 test failures, but you just take a second, calm down, and then actually look at the output. It doesn't take that long to identify what the problem is. Um, and so, yeah, having multiple assertions in a single test, that used to be something that say people say, no, don't ever do that. It's a bad idea. These days, our tools are good enough that, yeah, sure, you throw as many assertions in there as you like, because we're going to show you like in the terminal or whatever, we're, here's the code. This is the line right here. You can, you don't even have to pull up the file. You can see the the code right in the error. Um, so it like throw as many assertions in there as you want, um, as, as you need to, to get the confidence you're looking for. So I, I care a little bit less about like how long is this test going to take, like especially with UI integration tests, where I like, if, even if I render the whole page, if that's making my tests take too long, then my application probably has a performance problem. Um, and so I, I, should, I should deal with that performance problem. Like if it takes a full second to render my application, 
then I wonder what it's gonna do when I send that to my user and they're waiting for a full second for my application in a JavaScript just to render. Like, yeah, that's a performance problem. Um, and so, so you need to fix that. So typically I've found that my integration tests definitely do take longer than my unit tests. Like there's no doubt about it. Um, but the confidence coefficient um, for an integration test is just makes that, um, that difference so insignificant that I don't even think about it. Um, un unless there really is a performance problem, then I, I go and deal with that. Um, so anyway, hopefully check that kind of helps um, address what, what you're asking about. It, it does. The other thing that I'm going to ask then is why, why do you care about confidence? You know, I mean, we're, we're talking about the code working and my boss not getting mad at me, right? So what, what is confidence and why does it matter? What does it give me that's going to matter in the long term on anything else related to this project? Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Yeah, sure. So I think that confidence in your code kind of, it, it depends on what you're really looking for. So like some projects are just like, hey, this is a prototype, just throw it out there, like get it out. I wouldn't test anything in there. Mm -hmm. uh, I, like some people have integrated testing so much into their workflow that it actually makes them faster to write tests. Um, and, and there are certain things where that's true for me. Uh, and that's where test-driven development comes in really handy and stuff. Uh, other things are, are, um, are less like that. But for most people building applications and, and shipping to production, um, they, uh, they, they want two things. They want to make sure that they never actually uh, ship something to production that's broken. Uh, and they also want to be able to deliver features faster. Um, that's, that's probably true for 90% of developers out there is, is their higher-ups are wanting them to, to be able to ship things faster. Uh, and so testing to them looks like kind of a waste of time because like, why aren't you working on features? Why are, why are you spending all this time on testing? In the long term though, testing is going to make you faster because you, you'll spend less time dealing with bugs that you shipped to production because you had no confidence um, that your application was working the way that the user wanted it to uh, or, or like the way that it should. And so you spend a lot more time fixing those bugs that you ship to production and dealing with, uh, with production issues. And then like as, as you make changes and, and ca even if you don't ship those things to production, you have to uh, change your context from this feature that you're working on to this bug that you, you ship to stage or whatever. Um, so having those tests in place allow you to really quickly, like I'm, I'm adding this feature, I've got a bunch of tests around it, they're all passing because I literally just wrote it right now, so that's fine. And now I'm gonna go and commit It'll run all, all of my tests, or, or that happens in CI before the pull request is even merged. I see that I actually broke some unrelated thing or something I thought was unrelated 
in uh, this other area of the code base. So my mind is still um, in, uh, like within the context of, of this work and I can go and fix that before I, I even send it off. So it, it takes a little while, little while to get there and, and especially if you can work it into your workflow, that takes a, a while. But once you've got it, um, then it really speeds you up. Mm-hmm. And that, that level of confidence is going to make your users a lot happier as well. Yeah, I believe like any time you do like a real world application, you will really quickly reach that that stage where if you don't have like these guardrails, like in different parts of your application, only I, I can only see like small prototypes not being making fast. So uh, I have another uh, thing to talk about when you talk about the, the pyramid. Uh, I believe it also came from a time that the type of tests that we did were super related to the tooling that we would use for each test. So it was like, oh, unit tests are like Mocha Chai tests. And integration tests are Selenium tests. So I believe that the cost was very related to how difficult it is to to write tests and make them them work in these different tools, which Mm -hmm. is not the same thing as what the test is actually doing. So today, I believe that with the JS DOM and Cypress, we are making it independent, the tooling and the type of tests that we are writing. So we can still write integration tests in JS DOM being run by Jest, and they're pretty fast. So this cost, the cost will be much lower than, than before when we were write only like we were, we were only able to run like Selenium tests for these interaction parts. So this is another like today, most of our our tests here will be will be called integration tests if you if you look at them today but they are mostly being run on, on jest with js dom and they're not expensive yeah i i think that's a valuable insight and it's actually my dissatisfaction with the the testing pyramid and and the fact that it's outdated um led me to create a new uh, variant my own variant i call the testing trophy uh, it does have unit integration and end-to-end, and, and integration is the bulk of this, this trophy. But I added something that wasn't in the testing pyramid, uh, which I think is also quite valuable, and it's um, static code analysis. So static testing using tools like uh, Flow or TypeScript for, as a static type checker, and ESLint for your linting, and then even Prettier for your formatting, uh, because Prettier will reveal things in your code that are hidden bugs as it's formatting things. And so like you can get a lot of, like you eliminate an entire category of problems by using these static uh, code analysis tools. And so like I, I totally consider those an important part of any uh, well-tested quality application. And then you have your unit test that's kind of sits on top of that base and then uh, integration tests are bigger. And then the top of your uh, trophy is the end-to-end, which is again, just kind of like, let's use this application. I, I normally only have a few of those that are like happy path, uh, does a lot of things, uh, use the application the way that the user will. Uh, and that's that's proven to, to work out really well for me. Um, and I feel like it reflects better the, the confidence that we can gain from these different levels of isolation and focus. And then our, our tools have kind of enabled this. I feel like there's still a little bit more room on, on the end-to-end uh, tooling area. Uh, Cypress is really, really good. Um, and I feel like it can improve and, and we could spend a little bit more time in the end-to-end tests. Um, but uh, I, I feel pretty confident with the level of and, and where my tests are um, on that testing trophy. 
I have a question on this. Back when I was a, a new developer, you know, I was, I was still learning to tie my shoes. And one of the things that people kept talking about was using tests to actually track down bugs. So, you know, a bug comes up in production and if it's something that I can fix easily, at a minimum, I put a unit test in to make sure that it doesn't come up again, right? And, and I think that's generally good practice. But what if it's a hairy bug? Do you ever create like end-to-end tests that'll run through the scenario to see if you can find it? Or do you generally do it some other way? Yeah, that's a um, that's insightful. Uh, if you can, so um, there's this methodical approach that I haven't executed myself a whole lot, but it seems to make sense to me where um, you like when you get a bug like this, generally the the QA engineer or whoever it was that reported it will give you a step by step instructions on how to reproduce this. If you can take that and turn it into an end to end test that you can run. And, and reveal this bug, then that's really helpful. In the process of doing that, you might be able to, to find, oh, a subset of these instructions will actually reproduce this bug. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, maybe I don't even need to render the whole application. Maybe I can just render this, this one page or this one component. So you change that end-to-end test into an integration uh, test, and, and then you find, oh, that uh, a subset of this could actually reproduce this bug, and you, you whittle it down to a unit test. So that, I think that's probably it. Like that to me feels like a really good process to go about making sure that this thing doesn't happen again. Sometimes things happen that like you never would have had a test for and it doesn't really make sense to have a test for it anyway. Like uh, one example of this is that's actually pretty embarrassing is the uh, testingjavascript.com uh, was, I, I didn't actually build the website. I just made the content. The Egghead team uh, built the website and they used Gatsby which is a fantastic, phenomenal framework for building static sites. The default starter for Gatsby includes a plugin for offline mode. So you, it'll download all the assets uh, use, and in a service worker, you load the site offline and it works. It wouldn't download all the, the videos and stuff. That would be like, uh, we don't have room for that. But, but yeah, it'll download all the assets and things. So the, there was a bug in a dependency of a dependency of a dependency that um, basically made it so that if you direct to the page um, with a status code of 301, and then it will store the index HTML in the service worker with its content type set to plain text. And so the next time you come to the, to the page, you're just going to see a wall of HTML text. And then it's stored in there forever because it doesn't render, so you will never get a new service worker uh, loaded in. So like it's it's a nightmare of a bug. Like uh, there are still people who have this service worker installed in their browser, and they're like, I get messages regularly, like, "Hey, your website's busted," and I say, "Yeah, clear the service worker, try another browser, whatever." So I would never write a test for something like that. No, not not a high level one to say, "Hey, my service worker isn't um, making people see um, HTML." Like who who would think to write a test like that, right? So there are some, some things that you can never plan for and some things even now that I, like, I don't think I'd ever, like you solved that bug once, you fixed that bug once and now, and I'm sure that that dependency, you know, further down, they probably wrote a test to make sure that bug won't, won't happen again. Uh, but there are just so many things um, that can enter into your application um, to, that wind up causing problems that you would never think to write a test for. And even if that bug surfaced, um, like I can't even imagine writing a test case for a scenario like that. Yeah, you, you kind of have to, to weigh the trade-offs of um, like, does it make sense to have a test like this? But um, long story short, I think in general, if, 
if you can write a test for a bug that you found, I, I actually, lots of my projects will have, I'll have the test files and one file will call, be called bugs.js. And that's where I just put all the tests for bugs that have been found. And we just make sure those never, never happen again. Right. Awesome. So can we talk about the React testing library a little bit? So um, my, we need my to job, do another one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at, at my job, we, uh, we use Enzyme pretty heavily. Um, and I've definitely felt some pain points on it, um, particularly just like going through the readme of this project. One of, one of the things that you highlighted is like Enzyme really l almost gives you too many tools to be able to test implementation details of a component. And, and I've seen that a lot where we're really diving in and testing something very specific inside of that component. And then often, you know, you go back and you refactor or something changes, something happens, and then that test no longer works or no longer makes sense, or it's asserting something that isn't valuable. Um, and those, it's, it's always, I feel like that affects the confidence that you as a developer have about your test. Like rolling back to what we started this conversation with is like part of the confidence of the tests we write are like, will they work? <laughs> will they stand up over time? So how does, uh, how does React Testing Library kind of aim to solve that? Yeah, uh, so React Testing Library, like, so I, I've been using Enzyme like everybody else about a, like a year ago or a couple, uh, the beginning of this year. Um, and I was getting, preparing a workshop to teach people testing. And the way that I teach is I, I really like uh, you know, if people are coming to my workshop, they're coming so that they can level up their game on whatever the subject is. And so to do that, I think it's really important to teach them fundamentals and teach them how their abstractions work. So if I'm going to teach them Enzyme, I'm not going to start by teaching them en Enzyme. I'm going to start by teaching them what Enzyme does when you call the mount function. And so I started with just a regular React DOM.render. Here's our component. Here's a, a div that we just created out of thin air. And then we can interact with that uh, that way, which is what Enzyme does. It does a whole lot of other things. But fundamentally, that's all that it's really doing when you call mount. Uh, and I, I don't use shallow rendering. I have a blog post about that. I, I never use shallow rendering. I used it one time long enough for me to realize that all that it does is let you test implementation details. I wanted nothing to do with that. So I don't do shallow. I sometimes would do render, but I pretty much always did mount. So that's what I was teaching. And in the process of doing that, I realized like I am going to have this whole like 10 minutes that I'm showing them the list of, of enzyme methods. And I'm going to say, don't use this, don't use this, don't use this, don't use this, use this, don't use this, don't use this. Like, because you know, here we have an instance method. So you can get the instance of the class. You have this find method where you can pass a class display name um, and, and find a component by its display name. None of those things, your end users don't know or care about that. In fact, to your end users, React is an implementation detail. Uh, divs are an implementation detail. Like, all of, like the user doesn't care about these things. And so um, I, I just felt really uncomfortable preparing this workshop to teach people um, a tool where they can only use a subset. And I was like, maybe I should write uh, an ESLint plugin that checks for whether they're using these things and and warns them to not to and like uh, it was it was frustrating and I knew that Enzyme uh, like in if you look in the issue comments and things like they are heavily invested in in these APIs so I knew I couldn't make any headway in trying to make a change so I decided I'll I'll make my own and one that that doesn't have a list of things that that you shouldn't use and that doesn't allow you to test implementation details uh, easily. Like it, you still can, like 
Enzyme allows you to test implementation details. So like it's not magic. It's it, there is code under there and you can write that code yourself. So it's still possible for you to test implementation details with React Testing Library. There are some situations where that's the best way to do what you're trying to do. But most of the time, I didn't want my library to make that easy. And so we kind of have an increased um, pit of success. So what React Testing Library allows you to do is I, I really wanted to focus on this idea that and the more your tests resemble the way your software is used, the more confidence they can give you. And so rather than saying, hey, let me go find um, this component that renders my input and I'll pass it some props, I'll set its state, I'll do, do whatever, um, or rather than saying, okay, find me all of the inputs on this page and interact with each one in turn. The first one's going to be the username, I know that. I wanted to say, you know, how does a user test this code? Like how would a, a user manually run through and test this? They're going to find the username field, and they know that it's a username field because it's labeled username. Blind users will do this exact same thing. Uh, they're using a screen reader. They're going to find the username field because it's labeled username. And so I uh, was able to, to write a utility that um, finds the input field by the, the label text username. Um, you, you can use regex, so you can use a string, you can uh, even pass a function that returns true, like it'll just give you all the labels and you return true for the one that you're looking for. But doing that had a really awesome effect. And I, I should probably mention as well, I, I started out um, with a, a lot simpler um, idea where anything you wanted to select, you'd have to give an attribute called a data test ID. And, and then you can select that. Uh, I feel like those are a lot more uh, resilient than using class names, which lots of people use, uh, because class names can change because we, we use those for styling. And so you, you break your test because you're changing your class name. That's dumb. So um, I, I use test IDs. Then somebody suggested that I start uh, doing, you know, get by text and, and label and, and stuff. I, I wanted to make sure I mentioned that. That wasn't my idea. So yeah, anyway, I, I built that in. And, and now when you look at your test, what you're going to see is, okay, so we render this. That's, that's the one part of our test that is implementation detail specific. We're rendering a React component. That's, that's I mean, our, our developer is a user, and so this is how they're going to use it. Um, but uh, the rest of our test, uh, totally free of implementation details, including React. So we're going to, um, we'll get by label text username, um, we'll um, fire a change event on that and we'll set its value or, or we'll just manually set the value to check. And then um, the, we'll get by um, label text password, set its value to I need no password because I'm Chuck Norris. Um, and then we'll, we'll go get by text submit and we'll, we'll fire an event called click and we'll click on that submit button. And then um, for the developer user's benefit, we'll verify that, those, that our callback was called properly and make that assertion that it was called with the username and password. So now your test reads exactly almost like instructions that you'd give to a manual tester. Um, whereas with, with tools like Enzyme, uh, the instructions that your test is, uh, is showing are things that a user could never possibly accomplish. So anyway, that's, that's kind of where React Testing Library came from. Like two weeks after I released it, I started teaching it to people in workshops and really hoping that it worked out. <laughs> so I, didn't, I wasn't teaching people uh, to use a library that didn't go anywhere. Turns out it, it worked really well and, and people seem to be pretty happy with React Testing Library. And now uh, I extracted all these queries from React Testing Library into DOM Testing Library because I realized this is, uh, all these queries are totally implementation details um, free. And so now we have view testing library, there's Cypress testing library, there's, I think there's one for Angular. Uh, I think somebody is using one in uh, an Ember 
um, thing. I, I made one just for fun for Backbone and all kinds of these uh, different frameworks because it's it's totally free of implementation detail, which makes your tests a lot more uh, resilient to change. Like um, we're all excited about React hooks coming up. We don't have to change anything about our tests because they, they don't care about hooks. They just render components, um, which is pretty cool. So I've got a few more questions. Uh, one, so when you're getting something, when you're, when you're testing and grabbing like a label by its text, have you found that to be sort of fragile? I, I look back, I think back of my like jQuery development days where I, I took this really hard line of always make your hooks and dependencies explicit, right? So if you were like attaching jQuery functionality to a DOM element, you should be able to look at the DOM element and know because it had like a separate attribute or something that you're attaching, attaching extra functionality. And my instinct tells me that I'd want to have the same sort of thing with uh, a test. It's like make it visible to the developer that this thing is under test. But I can see the point is like from the user's perspective, they would just see the text. So like running the test in that way might make sense. But have you found that to be like relatively stable? Is it easy to like know when you change that label that it'll like the test will fail or, or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, Justin, this is a pretty common uh, criticism of uh, relying on content uh, because lots of developers actually don't have anything to do with content. Um, they, they just use translation keys and things and the content editors can come around later and, and change content wildly, which is one of the reasons why, well, so there's, I, I should say first, there's an escape hatch for this. And so if, if content just isn't going to work for you at all, then, then you can use get by test ID. That works pretty well. I and I'm the same as you, Justin. I want uh, my the fact that I'm testing this thing to be explicit. And so, rather than relying on a, a class name of you know button primary, we change that to button secondary. Now my test is broken. Like that's silly. Uh, so yeah, we use data test ID attributes, and and people are worried about shipping those to production. You should because then you can uh, run automation in production too, which is good. But if you don't want to, there are Babel plugins you can use to remove those things. But yeah, so it. I, I would generally tend to avoid doing that because you're testing or you're changing your source code for the sake of the tests, which I, I think is not altogether wise. So um, what, what you can do if you're worried about content changing is make your uh, selector for that label text as generic but specific as possible, if that makes sense. So um, rather than being case sensitive and you know it has to be the string username, you know, maybe the content editors come later and say, change it to be your username. And so now your, your test is broken. So instead, make it case insensitive all, and make it not match the whole string, just a regex that is, matches username. And the, the benefit of that is if the content editor comes in and says, oh, we're going to change this to email. Well, that actually changes the user's expectation. That, that breaks the application, right? And so I want my test to fail for that. And, or if somebody comes in and adds another username field, and it says their username or something, then yeah, your test could break in that scenario. And that would probably break the user's expectation as well. And so uh, tying yourself as closely as possible to the user's expectation, the user doesn't care if it says your username or just simply username. All they care about is that it has the text username in it. And so that's what your, te your test should do. Another thing that I've seen people do is, is they'll make their uh, translation abstraction um, when in tests, it will just render the translation key. Uh, and so like all of your tests, it's just rendering the key. And so you, you can select by key uh, if you want to do it that way. And then you'll, 
you'll, you won't be getting much confidence that the translation or the content editors aren't mucking around with stuff, but you can at least uh, verify that you're, uh, you're wiring things up properly. Because one of the benefits of selecting by a label, and one of the really awesome benefits that I've seen in developing this library uh, in the way that I have, is that if your label is not properly wired up to the input, like you just have a label, you have an input, but there's actually nothing connecting those two, then you can't use get by label text because you need to, you can get the label, but you can't get the input that's associated to it because it's not associated. Uh, and that's a huge benefit. I, I found a lot of people um, confused by that and I say, oh, well, your application isn't accessible. Yeah. Fix the accessibility and then uh, you can start testing properly. So th that's actually a bug. Uh, and a lot of people are also like, well, I've got this, this orange box that the user needs to click on. How do I get that orange box? I don't want to use a data test ID. I say, well, does that orange box have a label? How, how does a, you know, a, an end user know what that orange box is? Like, what if I'm blind? How do I know what that orange box is? Oh, well, okay, we need to add an ARIA label tag or, or have like an explicit label, and then we can find that element. Um, and so, um, yeah, it, it, the, the way that React Testing Library um, interacts and queries around your elements encourages your application to be uh, to resemble the way that users are using it uh, and in so doing also make your application more accessible yeah. uh, I want my screen reader just to say random orange box yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> aria label equals random orange box <laughs> I like this idea of having a different library because uh, usually we think that more powerful tools are better because we can do more. So like Enzyme is more powerful because we can do everything with Enzyme. But after spending a lot of time like studying these like strong type languages and they always talk about like making legal states not representable with the tests and stuff like that. So I think this is kind of the same thought process. It's like when you use React test libraries, some things are like impossible to do like you cannot, uh, of course, nothing is impossible with JavaScript, but it's like not out of the box that you can inspect the state of the component. So you're actually putting constraints. You're make, you, you made like a, a less powerful library, correct me if I'm wrong. You made like a less powerful library, but what the library does is actually like a collection of best practice that, that, that you want to enforce. So it's like, much easier it's you can't is much stronger than you shouldn't does it make sense yes so. absolutely um you know you tie your hands to free your mind um you know and and i i think that's that's super true of of this library i i'll amend what you said by saying it 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 absolutely does less um, but what it does it does better and so with Enzyme, if you wanted to get an input by its label text, you'd have to write a whole bunch of code. They don't have something like that. But uh, React Testing Library um, enables that, which makes writing the tests a lot easier. And in fact, for a very long time, people have said, uh, TDD is the best, test-driven development, it's awesome. Oh, except for UI. Like, you can't test drive UI. That doesn't make any sense. I don't know what it's going to look like. Am I going to render a div or a span? I don't know. Um, but um, whether you render a div or a span is an implementation detail. So if you can use a tool that doesn't allow you to test implementation details or doesn't make it easy anyway, uh, and your test is free of implementation details, now suddenly you can actually start using test-driven development. Well, I know I'm making a form, and I know it's going to have a username input, and I know it's going to have a password, and I know it's going to have a submit. So I can write that test 
and then I can go implement it. And uh, in testing JavaScript.com, I do exactly that. And I, I've got like eight videos in a row that show you the process of test driving a login form. Um, because now with, with uh, React Testing Library, it's actually reasonably possible to use test-driven development to develop UI, which is pretty cool. I imagine that in combination with Cypress too? Would yeah. Be, yeah. Yeah, so that's one really nice thing about how easy Cypress is to use and, and how, like, how great the developer experience is, is that before with Selenium, it was just such a pain to write and maintain Selenium tests that nobody, want, like, test-driven development with Selenium was, like, that's a total joke. Like, even just hearing those words together is, is hilarious. But in testing JavaScript.com, I actually have a video where I show you how we can test drive uh, or use Selenium as our test driver for implementing a new feature. Uh, so I, I called it Cypress-driven development. But today, you're going to have your Chrome window, and you'll have your editor, and you'll make some changes in your editor. Then you'll refresh, and you'll, you'll navigate, click through, click, click. Yeah, exactly. Lucas is doing the click, click, click with me. Um, <laughs> but uh, like that, that process is really frustrating. I, I know everybody has had that experience where you're making changes to this thing that's like 12 steps in through this form flow or whatever, and it's really frustrating. Uh, well, you, can, you could write those 12 steps in Cypress first, and then, uh, and Cypress will get you into that state. And then in Cypress, you can still like interact with the DOM and play around with things. And so Cypress can get you into the state every time you make a change really, really quickly. And so uh, Cypress-driven development um, is a pretty awesome workflow. I haven't totally converted over uh, to that, um, but I, I want to because I think that it's a, a really good idea. Even if you don't end up committing those tests, like maybe they're not really useful, um, they were uh, they're a workflow mechanism, um, and I, I think that's a pretty cool uh, cool approach. I just uh, wrote a small uh, library here at work to deal with metrics, and I 100% did that. npm starts starts Storybook, starts Cypress, and you just start. Uh, and I was like uh, automating all the those small clicks that I usually do, like you. Write a little bit, click a little bit, write a little bit, click a little bit. No, just automate those clicks. And it was really good. I felt like a, an improvement in my, in my efficiency that, that way. And, and those became the tests. Like those three scenarios became the, the, the three integration tests for the library, and that was it. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right, so one last question that I have. Uh, so what about React Native? Uh, that's one of the biggest things that come up at Artsy because we like do a lot of React Native stuff. So in looking at uh, testing libraries, we always try to, to keep parity between the two so there's not a whole lot of cognitive shift. So do you have any thoughts on that? Have you uh, approached, I mean, I saw that there was like a clone of React Testing Library from Callstack that was like similar to, to yeah. React Library, but. Yeah, so the, the tricky thing with, uh, like I, I say that, hey, React Testing Library, free of implementation details, you can use DOM Testing Library, to test any framework, uh, except the problem is that React Native doesn't render to the DOM. It, it renders to a completely different target uh, and so that, yeah, that brings a, a tricky situation. So in React Testing Library documentation, there's an example of how you can mock out um, all of a React Native's elements, like the view and whatever. Um, and, uh, and it works pretty well, as long as you're not using navigation, apparently, um, in your tests. 
but uh, lots of people are using navigation in their tests. So, so yeah, that, that's always been a little bit tricky, but I, I don't use React Native personally, so I wasn't going to work on solving this problem. Um, so that's when CallStack built React Native testing library, and they talked with me about it, and, and I kind of helped uh, give them some ideas and things, and, and they built React Native testing library. And that's what I recommend people uh, using React Native use. Um, it, it encapsulates lots of the same principles that I'm trying to accomplish with React Native Testing Library and, and the other testing libraries that I've created. They do a couple of extra things that are different from what we were doing in React Testing Library, but I feel pretty confident in, in what they're doing, and I think it's a, a good thing. So that's, what I, that's where I direct people to. And the nice thing is um, when you get into this testing library community, you get pretty um, comfortable with um, how similar they are, uh, especially any of those that are based on DOM testing library. They're going to be very, very similar. All the queries are going to be the same. Uh, React testing library has a couple different queries, uh, but you you kind of get a handle on that uh, pretty quick, I think. And yeah, <laughs> hopefully that that helps uh, yeah, folks yeah. who are using React Native. Cool. Thanks. Yep. All right, I'm getting thumbs up from people. <laughs> I don't feel that smart. Kent, Kent's the smart one. <laughs> Anything else that we should jump on with this? I mean, it's, it's fascinating just to dive in and, and talk about this. And I really, really love the idea of, yeah, essentially testing what's different about my app instead of the implementation details I pull in. So that, that's a powerful concept on its own. Plus, when we talk about confidence, I mean, that, that's, that's really powerful too. Not just for, you know, the idea of, hey, it works, but also... I can move ahead and know that something's going to uh, rear up and bite me if I do something wrong. So I have one question that maybe could be a good last question. It's okay. So you are uh, you come to work in this component. You need to solve a bug in this component. You never tested it before. Okay, I'm gonna. And it has like 50 uh, different tests that you see that 45 of them are like super like implementation tests that are not helping you at all. And then you start your PR with 50 tests and you end up with seven tests. How do you deal with people in the teams? Everybody say like, are you, are you deleting tests? Are you crazy? Uh, <laughs> Time to find a new job. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you could show them the coverage report and say, oh, like th those tests were not good. They were not helping. And we still have the same amount of coverage. Uh, and the new tests that I have here are, um, will break less. Well, they'll, they'll break when they're not supposed to, or they won't break when they're supposed to not break, and they will break when they are supposed to break, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, you just send them one of my blog posts uh, and, and then say merge this. Uh, that, that's one thing I failed to mention. Um, I, I have testingjavascript.com where you can um, support my family in, uh, <laughs> and uh, pay me some money to, to learn all about testing, um, but I have a, a huge amount of free content available on my blog and on my YouTube channel that, uh, that you can go learn a lot about uh, some of these ideas. So, and I also have a newsletter I send out weekly, um, not always about testing, lots of times it's React or just JavaScript or Babel plugins or whatever, um, but um, you can find that kcd.im slash news. And uh, like this last newsletter I sent out was like my final answer to why are implementation details so bad and what are they even? So it's it's pretty pretty good sized blog post. It'll hit my blog in a couple of weeks. But yeah, just send them that and say these were all implementation details tests. They're worthless. I rewrote these to be free of implementation details. We didn't need as many, which is typical. Like if you're testing implementation details, you generally need more. And uh, and if you're 
test is free of implementation details, you generally don't need as many. Uh, so you say, yeah, I, I have fewer tests, but I still have the same amount of coverage, and these tests will break when they're supposed to. Yeah, one other thing just to add on to what Kent said is that I am a big fan of trying something and seeing how it goes. And so you can also tell your teammates, look, um, and, and this is a principle of agile development, and I don't know if that'll help you or not, but essentially you can say, look, let's try this for a while. Uh, the old tests are still in the Git history, right? If we really want them back, we can get them. But for right now, let's see if this speeds up our tests, if it makes life a little bit better for us. And then, yeah, if, if we decide, you know what, those tests were playing a, a major role or we feel like, you know, one of them may have been deleted erroneously, then we can go pull it out of the Git history and put it back in and nobody's hurt by it. Chuck, I love that so much. I've got an entire blog post about why you should never commit commented out code because I might need it in the future uh, because like we've got Git, friend. Like we can go back and get stuff. If you know, I, I totally agree. Let's try this out, see how we like it. We can always go back because Git is great. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing is, is like Git history from the command line is sometimes tricky to deal with, but most people are committing to a GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, whatever. And you can search the code base in there. You can find exactly the commit you want to reverse and you can just pull it back in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, life is great. <laughs> Everything is awesome. <laughs> now I'm going to start singing. All right. Uh, well, <laughs> do it. Okay. So uh, let's go ahead and do some picks. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers. Or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Lukas, you want to do some picks? All right. I'm going to talk about a book I just bought. Like when I started thinking about planning more and I got into state machines and how to think about our, our uh, products and our UI flows before actually starting to code. And one uh, resource... That, uh, that I found, it was really good, was this blog by Hilo Wayne. He talks a lot about uh, tools to, to, to help you with planning, even like uh, proving uh, stuff in your requirements. And he, uh, I learned about this tool called TLA Plus in his blog, and I bought his book, just released, called Practical practical TLA plus I have no idea yet on how I'm going to use this on <laughs> on real life but it's one of those books and those ideas that make you think about stuff so it, it is uh, the amount of uh, problems that you can solve before you start actually coding is uh, is amazing so just knowing that this types of uh, tools uh, exist already like spark stuff like in my mind and I'm pretty sure it, it will be interesting to a lot of people. Nice. Justin, what are your picks? 
Uh, so I've got two. One is very, uh, very in the weeds. Um, so I do a lot of work on our continuous integration Circle CI builds at work. Um, and I've been getting really in the weeds, uh, trying to like parallelize everything and I'm building a new release process around like, so we want to like ship a release every time a PR is merged. Um, and that's been a really interesting endeavor, but there's this repo that I discovered this week that's like been really awesome. So if you use Circle CI, uh, one of the Circle engineers, uh, wrote this, uh, Circle CI job called Circle Queue. So it allows you to queue up jobs in your workflow. Um, hopefully this like makes it as like a, a circle feature eventually. But so if you like want to, for our case, we want every master build to be queued up. So they happen sequentially and like a master build like builds and publishes before the next one runs. That way we're like, you know, have sequential releases. Um, it's kind of a, it's a really, really useful thing. And also as a part of this, uh, it kind of goes into my next pick. There is a bash testing framework called bats. Um, so it's bash automated testing system. So if you ever find yourself writing some really complicated bash, uh, use that, uh, I actually found that example in the in that circle uh library so it was it blew my mind uh also don't write complicated bash if you can help <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah yeah that's yeah um the last thing is i've been trying to get my life more organized and i've used just tons and tons of to-do apps and to-do tools and i'm still trying to find the right one but I've been using Todoist lately, um, and it's worked out really well so far. The thing that I like most about it is it has an open API. Um, so I've got just a lot of crazy integrations. I've got GitHub integrations and Jira integrations, and that's really helps kind of get all the tasks into one place for me so far. So good. If anybody else has any recommendations for <laughs> good to do things, then you know, let me know, because I'm always trying to stay on top of it. That's my picks for this week. Nice. That reminds me of a technique that I picked up out of uh, a podcast I've been listening to. Um, the podcast is called the MF CEO Pro Project. Um, MF stands for Mother Effing CEO. Uh, you know, I try and keep a clean rating on here, so I'm not going to give you the full name, but I'm sure you can find it. Um, if you just do a Google search for MF CEO, you'll find it. Um, but anyway, one of the things that the host, Andrew, Andy Frizzella, said was, um, to list the five things you need to get done today and then just do them, right? And then you know you conquered your day. Um, and I've, I've really been doing that the last week and really been liking it. So um, I'm going to toss that out there. It's just kind of a an interesting um, tip, I guess. And I'll pick the podcast as well. Um, and then, yeah, I also just want to quickly uh, pick the show. So if you go to thedevrev.com, um, that's where the podcast is at the developer revolution we're about developer freedom in all forms and uh yeah so I'll, I'll i'll be talking a lot about different things there i'll probably wind up having guests on as you know just people that you've heard of from the programming community but i am i am jazzed about it i started to get kind of uh what sad bored uh, i don't know over the summer and then some of that i think was just due to some of the 
no fun crap that I went through at the beginning of the year. But I was thinking, why am I doing this? And then I realized that I, I do it because it helps people. And because it helps people find that fulfillment and that excitement and that freedom and that, you know, in, in this industry, in this day and age, um, especially in the U.S. and other, um, you know, well-off countries, I mean, there's no excuse for you to not be happy with, you know, your job and where you're at and things like that. You know, you may have to pay some dues and not have an ideal job for your first year or so. But after that, I mean, you should be able to find something that really lights you up. And so that's what I'm about. And so for some people, you know, like, uh, you know, I talked to, you know, Kent, it seems like teaching is a big part of that. I talked to some of the other folks out there and open source contribution is a big part of it. Or, you know, organizing conferences is a big part of it. Or just being able to work on cool stuff, you know, and so they love their job because they work on cool stuff. So, you know, I, I'm just like, you know, if it fires you up, let's, let's, uh, let's do it. So anyway, um, that's part of why I'm writing the how to get a job book again is find, find the job that'll light you up and here's how you get noticed. So anyway, I also encourage people to go find their why, right? I mean, and if your why or why you do things takes you into other fields, I mean, that's great too. So anyway, uh, Kent, what are your picks? All right, cool. I agree with finding your why. I'm going to repick that. Find your why. Um, <clears throat> so I've got a couple other things. I'll just reiterate. I released testingjavascript.com. It is uh, the most comprehensive, the biggest, best place for you to learn about testing on the internet. I feel very confident about that. And uh, then I'm also going to pick my newsletter. I send weekly um, blog posts. It's like totally free and whatever. It, uh, if you don't mind um, emails. You can also subscribe to the RSS feed, um, but you can find that at kcd.im slash news. Uh, and two weeks after I post something to the newsletter, I uh, stick it on my blog. So um, people who don't like email can still enjoy stuff um, later. So it's blog.kencydods.com. Um, and then with all of this excitement about React hooks and React suspense um, coming soon to React, well, suspense is here, but most only mostly um, I uh, created a series of about 30 minutes worth of egghead videos. They're totally free. They're not, it's not a course or anything, but I, they're collected together in a playlist. You can find that at kcd.im slash hooks dash and dash suspense. And it includes testing with hooks. And basically the reason I included testing with hooks was so I could show you that React testing library doesn't care. <laughs> you can use hooks if you want. And then one last thing that's not programming related, but something I've been working on really heavily is this nanorimo.org. That's uh, National Novel Writing Month. It's this, uh, the month of November, people of all over the world will spend the entire month writing 50,000 words for a novel. It's pretty fun. And we've got this, uh, actually I'll get a link to this Discord for, uh, called Devs Who Write. Um, that I helped uh, get started where we talk about um, our work in writing our novels. Um, mine is like really jazzing me up. I, I've got um, like 13,000 words uh, so far in this month. So I'm on, on track to write 50,000 words of a novel in the month of November. Super fun. It's fantasy. There's a really cool magic system and all that. Um, and I, I have a link to the Google Doc in the Discord. So if you want to read my totally unedited uh, NaNoWriMo novel, then you can go check it out on Discord. And that's it for me. Nice. I definitely want to get on in on that. 
you talk about nonfiction writing too, or is it all fiction writing? Um, we accept all writers. So yeah, if you want to uh, do nonfiction, um, some people are in there not doing NaNoWriMo, just doing short stories and stuff. Whatever you want to chat about, uh, we've got a channel for tools uh, on becoming a better writer and, and just talking generally and all, all kinds of stuff. Nice. All right, Kent. Well, I, I think you're fairly well known, but just for people who got their first introduction to you uh, today, where do they find you online? You can find me on Google. Uh, I use the C in my middle or my middle initial C to make me even easier to Google. So Kent C. Dodds. Um, I'm Kent C. Dodds on Twitter, GitHub, uh, everywhere. Um, so you can find me anywhere. All right. Well, thank you, Kent. That was awesome. Thank you. I thought it was pretty fun too. All right, folks, we will uh, come back next week with another episode. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. <laughs>